1: I'm Rachel Wadham and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of genre, reading and writing. First, we'll have author David Butler in studio with us to talk about different genres. Then, we'll talk with Kathleen Brown, the director of the University of Utah Reading Clinic, about helping at-risk and struggling readers. Our last guest will be Elizabeth McLeod, and we'll talk about her writing journey. Before we leave you, we'll step around the librarians' table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with the poem Midwinter. Center by Leslie Norris, and we'll step into the classroom to learn about telescopes. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world.
2: world.
1: In today's world, we are called upon each day to engage with a wide range of digital literacies, which allow us to interact with the technology that surrounds us to find information, connect with people, and solve problems. In this environment, there are lots of key literacy skills that both children and adults must master in order to be digitally literate. One of those important skill sets is the ability to act safely and respectfully online. No matter what community we belong to, there are socially and legally appropriate ways to act as part of that community. This fact is true for digital communities as well. However, sometimes the boundaries between what is right and wrong in an online environment can be hard to navigate, especially for children and teens. At a very basic level, the first thing kids need to understand about online safety is about what kinds of information is okay to share online. It needs to be clear that things like preferences, such as our favorite color, and even our first names are okay to share, but things like your phone number or birth date are not. The next step is for children to learn to be aware, especially of people who may be trying to get that private information. Along with these safety skills, another thing children must learn is how to be respectful online. These kinds of skills are essential as we work to combat issues like cyberbullying and other online abuse. While one of the first ways to combat these abuses is for parents to monitor devices and use parental controls, it is also important for children to understand what cyberbullying is so they can recognize it and report it to concerned adults when they see it. Children also need to be sensitized to respectful interactions so they can understand what might hurt or embarrass someone if it is posted online. For more resources, check out the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services website, stopbullying.org, because we know here at Rachel's World just how important it is for children to develop digital literacies so they can be safe and respectful online. Rachel's World a library can be like an ice cream parlor with as many different types of books as there are ice cream flavors. Some flavors are familiar favorites, others are foreign but fun to try, and some are mixes between the two. Genre is an important flavor of a book's development and identity. We're in studio today with author David Butler to discuss just that. Welcome, David.
3: Thank you, Rachel.
1: You are a writer of what we would classify as science fiction fantasy. So, yes. to start out today, maybe define what that means to you. What what does that genre classification mean for you as a writer?
3: So, I here's how I think of it. And 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 you're right to say science fiction fantasy. I have written um, a little of what I would think of as science fiction. Science fiction for me is the imaginative literature of technological what ifs. What if technology let us do this? What if technology let us do that? Uh, mostly, what I write is fantasy, and including uh, fantasy in some unusual guises. So, uh, Star Wars, for example, is actually fantasy, yeah. space opera or or science fantasy. Especially if you watch Episode Eight and you see things like you know the bombs falling through zero yeah. G, and it's just fantasy. It's not the sci- None of the science is supposed to work. Uh, steampunk is also almost always really a subgenre of fantasy. Yeah. There's, uh, certainly the way I've written it, the, the science does not work. The interesting question is not the science, which is made up. And in fact, when I write steampunk, I deliberately sometimes choose scientific dead ends and pretend they really happened just for the sake, phlogiston or ether or whatever. The interesting question has to do with uh, the fantasy questions. So what are the fantasy questions? Fantasy is the imaginative literature of spiritual what-ifs. And that, I think, is amazing because it makes it a kind of a shamanic thing.
1: You know, when I read your wonderful book for middle graders, uh, Clockwork Charlie, and the upcoming sequels, I would very much categorize it as steampunk, which is what you were describing. And steampunk is – a very varied genre. You're right. It it can be more hardcore science fiction. It can be more hardcore fantasy. Essentially, it's set in kind of Victorian or Edwardian times, and technology is made possible by steam. So that, just for a definition for our listeners who may not know about that. Sure. So when you set out to write Clockwork, Charlie, did you intend that genre from the beginning, or was it something else that made it become that genre?
3: So my creative process starts with a one free thing that the universe gives me. I was writing another steampunk book at the time and enjoying it. And I don't remember if I was going to read to my children that night or something. But at some point during the day, I had a contact with our big illustrated Carlo Collodi's original Pinocchio. And I thought, oh, this should be be rewritten as a steampunk adventure story. And so then I spent like a week trying to figure out – it seems so obvious that surely somebody has done it. Uh, and the answer is they haven't. There are things similar to it, Astroboy Boy or Steven Spielberg's AI, but no one had done it. And so, I, so, I, so that was what I started with. I want a steampunk Pinocchio and everything flowed out of that.
1: It seems to me that you take a lot of inspiration from other things. You've mentioned Steven Spielberg. You've mentioned Pinocchio. As I was reading the book, I saw Dickens. I saw Edgar Allan Poe. I saw even some uh, Tolkien Mm -hmm. in there, maybe even some C.S. Lewis uh, with that kind of spiritual sense of things. So how is it that you draw inspiration from these other sources to – create a more richer world that then is entirely uniquely yours?
3: So I'd say first of all this, if you want to produce writing, you have to be reading writing. Very few people have enough experience or experience of the kind that you can produce interesting books out of it yourself or very many interesting books, right? To write is to be in dialogue with the great stream of literature. So you have to be writing all the time and to some extent – uh, sorry, you have to be reading all the time. And to some extent, if you are reading all the time and uh, trying to write, your brain, my brain, digests what I've read and and makes connections. So I would say, one, you have to be reading all the time. I'd say sometimes you, you deliberately uh, want to engage with texts. So this is in a different series. But I have an adult epic fantasy novel. Uh, a series. The first novel is called Witchiae, which is very much my bid to be America's J.R.R. Tolkien. So the thing about Tolkien that uh, is essential and often not appreciated is that he's profoundly Christian. He is a uh, Roman Catholic. He's a serious Catholic. There's a letter he wrote to a Jesuit friend Uh, about the Lord of the Rings in which Tolkien says, I don't think anyone can possibly like this book. It's way too Catholic. (laughs) And people miss it. But what Tolkien has done is it's not – people will often say, oh, he he took Germanic elements and made a mythology for England. That's half the story. He took Germanic elements and made a Christian mythology for England. So when Frodo wakes up in the Houses of Healing in Gondor – after it's over, right, and sees Gandalf. Gandalf's words are the, the people of Gondor will forever after remember March the 25th because this was the day Sauron fell. Now, the thing about March the 25th is that in the English medieval uh, liturgical calendar, that was celebrated as the day of the crucifixion. Which means that for Tolkien explicitly Tolkien's a medievalist. This is the stuff he knew. For Tolkien explicitly, the day that Gollum holds the ring and falls into Mount Doom is the day that Christ is crucified.
1: You know, that that is one of the things I love about literature and of all literature is because it is so much more than what is on the page, right? it's not just that basic level, it's this complexity, there are layers. So do you as an author, do you start to put those layers in there? Are you really conscious of all those layers? Or are there some that you're surprised about when a reader comes to you and says, oh, I see this in the book, or I see this connection in the book, and you're like, wow, I never even considered that that was there. (laughs)
3: Never admit that. Just give a mysterious smile. I was
1: like, oh, yeah, Yeah. that was was totally planned.
3: (laughs) Uh, Umberto Eco tells us that the author should never interpret her own work. So uh, in fact he says the best favor the author can do the readers is finish the book and then die. <laughs> um, so uh, so yes, sometimes it's extremely deliberate. Often it isn't. Often it shouldn't be. The risk, what you got to be careful of is that you don't accidentally rewrite somebody else's story so obviously that people read it and go, oh, well, that's just X. And I think that's I – think, I think A, first of all, you probably will do that at least once because imitation is how you learn. And uh, and when you catch yourself doing it, you get better at going. Wait, I'm accidentally repeating a Leonard Cohen ly- lyric here, or I'm I've accidentally just rewritten the story of Ewan Shield Maiden. Right, I need to yeah. let me change that.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing that fascinates me about this whole conversation is the fact that you take your readers so seriously in this context. So as you interact with those readers and as you write for those readers, what what do you as an author look for, particularly when you're writing for that younger audience? How are you how are you conveying that respect for your readers through your writing?
3: I don't write down to them. I don't I don't pull punches. I mean, for example, uh, the kidnap plot actually ends very sadly. It does not have a happy end. It has, has an ending of growth and a kind of success and also a kind of really tragic failure. Uh, you know, I think, I think with respect to vocabulary is really the only place where I try to be careful. And even then in the, in the writing, I won't be. I'm the kind of writer who has to go back and the editor says, you know, pusillanimus might be a little bit over the <laughs> line. All right.
1: That's a little too complex.
3: Cowardly, right? <laughs> but uh, but, 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 but A, kids know a lot more than we think. You know, they're, they're the same as us. Just, they just don't have as much experience. And B, how they learn is by getting exposed to things they don't know. I mean if I, if I read a book and every single thing in it I already knew, I would feel unchallenged and bored. So uh, I pull very few punches.
1: You pull very few punches, but you pull them in a very appropriate developmental way, which is what I love about your works for children, is Is the sense that you honor their capabilities and extend them beyond that. So as we close up our conversation today, maybe tell us a little bit about that Surprise that you might have had with a reader. What what was some interaction that you had with a reader that just made your heart sing, or that showed you that you really feel like you're doing exactly what that reader needed?
3: I uh, two 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 short stories here. One, I met a boy named Luca in at at Hartford's uh, Comic Con, Hart, Kinetic Con was called. I was out there a couple of years ago. And uh, they they bought the book and and then they and I gave him a business card as I often do as a little bookmark and and uh, Luca and his dad emailed me a couple weeks later because Luca's grandfather had just died and that and he wanted to talk to me about his grandfather dying right and and what I'd written in the end of that book was sort of meaningful enough for him raised enough questions that he wanted he thought I could talk to him about it and so I did I called him and you know talked talked with my friend Luca and that's very that's very sort of intimate kind of here's a here's a less intimate less one-on-one kind of example i went last january uh, a year ago to uh, up to treasure valley idaho so boise and the the surrounding towns to go to visit schools and a uh, bookstore owner uh, of a wonderful uh, shop called rediscovered bookshop in downtown boise uh, organized this for me and she asked early on she said hey writers come here and they tend to go to uh, they just stay in boise would you be willing to go to other towns I said absolutely. By the way, this is the worst winter Idaho had seen in like 30 years, and some <laughs> you would of those towns, take that <laughs> yeah, they don't have snow plows. So there were like four inches of ice on the road, and it's rutted like wagon wheels, and I'm skidding around in my four Taurus trying not to go off the road. Um, but I went to a school that had never, ever in its history had an author, and so they had no idea what to expect. And I, I do kind of a show. I brought a guitar. And I like sang a song, and I played storytelling games with them. And I got back a big packet of thirty hand-drawn posters, each kid uniquely conceptualizing some scene from my book. Clearly, a few of them had not actually read it. That's okay. That's okay. You know, and it's I have this so I had this folder full of um, uh, full of pictures they made. You know, it was it was interesting enough. It was a, a, it got their attention enough. They went and read the book. And wanted to send me their art. I thought it was fantastic.
1: That connection that authors make with their readers, I think, is so wonderful. And I love the fact that you honor that so much, not only in your writing, but then also in your experiences, and that you can share such deep insights with us today about all of your experiences. Thank you so much, Dave.
3: Thanks for having me, Rachel.
1: Thank you so much, David. David Butler is a religious educator and author. Next, it's story time with the poem Midwinter, written and read here by Leslie Norris.
4: I quite like winter, really, where we can see everything as it should be. A grey, flat sky and a flat land squeezing the eye of the north. Great blows of snow swing on a blind wind as the staggering morning lurches itself half alive. A beast could not stand alive now. What sparrows flew flocks deep long ago lie soft in their feathery dust, their frail twigs splintered as ice. Furrows are nailed to the ground by winter's iron and lie emptied of seeding. A desperate noise is lost somewhere in the width of the cold. Houses lean to the violence and gasp, holding on. A small house, shoulders lower, grips firmly its hold on whatever safety the rigid season offers, so that its man, stung loud awake by treachery of the year, runs to make the small flames burn in the dead wood of his hearth, Turns his wet eye aghast at the rolling window He hears with pain his dry blood rustle With a little groan
1: child has a different way of learning. They have their own pace, strengths, and weaknesses, and other strategies. Sometimes that means that they don't learn to read or speak as quickly as other children. So how do we help the children that are really struggling? Today we're in studio with Kathleen Brown. She's the director of the University of Utah Reading Clinic. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. You have such a strong expertise in helping us to understand the reading process and how kids approach that and how we should interact with kids. Particularly, I think, of concern to parents and teachers and concerned adults out there is what happens when we have a kid who's really struggling, who is having problems with either decoding or comprehension or any of these aspects that come into reading? How do we help those
2: kids that's a great question and this this really is our wheelhouse being the University of Utah Reading Clinic. Um we we work with so many really thousands of kids over the course of a year through the teachers that we work with and then also the children who come right at their parents bring them right into the clinic in Murray. And I would just add here that if you're concerned that your child or that a child in your classroom uh is struggling as a, as a reader, we have a fabulous website that really shows gives lots of information. By the way, everything on it is free, including our assessments. And so if you go to www.uurc, that's the acronym, uurc.org, um, and do some exploring there, I think you can get a lot of good information. Because really the first step is assessment. Um, if I will also say this too. So the assessment has to be data-driven. But I will also say to all those moms out there, and I'm not, I'm I'm grounding myself in gender because I think the mother's gut, as I call it, if a, if you as a mom feel in your gut that something's wrong, that your child is not learning to read or speak. Uh, you know but not learning to read as well as you think he or she should and this goes to the grandmas too cuz grandmas also have a sense of this and they'll say things like well I don't want to interfere because I don't want my daughter-in-law to get mad to, get mad at me but those are the grandmas that show up in the at the clinic with the child in tow <laughs> if you're questioning if there's a problem you're probably right there probably is a problem now we get some false positives sometimes the mom who all the rest of the kids, you know, are brilliant and they're all at Harvard. And then the one child who's kind of regularly achieving seems like, oh, a dullard. We get those occasionally, too. But for the most part, if your gut says there's a problem, there is. So you start with assessment. You want to find out what is your child's instructional reading level. And I say instructional reading level with a, a deep purpose there. That will help you know when you compare to the child's chronological age, grade level. Yeah whether there's a problem or not. And we typically find a problem in rate, oral reading rate or speed. The goal isn't to be a speed reader, but if your child comes up with an assessment as a slow reader, what that tells you is the child has not reached automaticity for enough words in memory. And so the child is having to look at the words and decode them, which takes time and then leaves less left over for making meaning, if that makes sense. So the automaticity, it's not like the goal of reading is to read fast. I really want to um, put the nail in that coffin. because that's, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That, the goal is not to read fast. The goal is to be automatic with words so that you can have all that freedom, that glorious freedom, left open for comprehending and enjoying and learning from text. So in that sense, rate is a clear indicator of where there are problems, and you can get that through an assessment looking for instructional reading level. I I really appreciate you saying that about rate, because I've worked
1: okay. with some kids who actually read too fast, and yep. that prevents them from making meaning. You're exactly So right. it's not about mm-hmm. how fast we read. It's just about making sure that we have that automaticity, That's that right. we know how to do that.
2: And we know from looking at normally achieving readers just how fast that should be. Yeah. We have norms that suggest at, for example, at the end of first grade, a child should be able to read first grade text. For example, Frog and Toad, yeah. any of the Frog and Toad books, at around I would say you know forty-five to fifty words a minute, with about ninety-three percent accuracy. It, when a child can reach those criteria, it bodes well for them developing into successful readers. Now that implies also, and I want to be clear about this, that implies sufficient background knowledge, because yeah. that's another key piece. You have ch- I, I we work with kids who can de- can uh, process print, we call it that's accuracy and rate, can process print beautifully but don't understand what they're reading. Now, that's a tragedy, okay? But I'd rather have a child who can process print beautifully but not comprehend than a child who can't process print yeah. nor comprehend, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so for that child, then you need to look at, okay, why is this child not comprehending? Is this child an English learner? Does this child come from a poverty background? Does this child have a communication disorder? Um. But I will say that the rate is a, is a proxy for reading comprehension, and you can tell a lot from it. Yeah. So after we've
1: assessed and figured out where this deficit between the level, their instructional level, and their their the level that they're at is, what is the next step? What, what do we
2: do next? Uh, the next step, I would say, is um, matching the child to an appropriate level of text and then getting a lot of what I would call miles on the page in text. If you think about how do good readers get to be good readers well hopefully they've had some they've probably had some instruction but they've also put miles on the page they've read and they've read and they've read children who struggle as readers tend not to read of their own accord they would rather there's a famous line i want to say mm-mm. I'll get his name in a minute. The researcher who quoted a child as saying, I'd rather clean the grout in the bathroom than read. I th- that's low. <laughs> that's <know>? way low. <laughs> <laughs> that's a low yeah. bar. Yeah. Um, and so those children don't don't choose to read. Well, it's like shooting free throws. You don't just get to be a great free throw shooter because you, sh- you shoot a couple of times at practice. You know, Karl Malone was 44% when he first started for the jazz and uh, – uh, Jerry Sloan told him, that's got to go up. So he shot free throw after free throw. It's just like it's the same with reading. You've got to get miles on the page. And so um, miles on the page is huge, but the appropriate level text. Yeah. So you need to look for leveled text. And there are lots of schemes out there for doing that. I, know, I shouldn't say schemes. I don't mean that in a bad way. But there are lots of um, places you can go for leveled yeah. text online. And again, our website is a great uh, resource for that. So, so let me, so one more thing. Text, 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 lots of it at the appropriate level. The other thing would be, we would call it word study instruction, but that includes phonics, spelling, phonological awareness, even a little bit of handwriting. So word study instruction at the appropriate level to fill in the holes that are there. I think of uh, struggling readers' phonics knowledge, it's like Swiss cheese. Yeah. And so those have to be filled in so they understand how the written language works in terms of syllable structure that you
1: advocate for a balance of those two elements mm-hmm. is is wonderful to me because I think sometimes when we think about struggling readers, we think about just, you know, this hardcore phonics instruction with mm-hmm. worksheets and, you know, trying to help them to learn these words and that's all that they do. Um, you know, I have been in special ed classrooms and, and resource classrooms where that is all they do is just this drill and kill over and over and I think It's not sufficient. Yeah, just they need to read text and they need to just see the whole context of the text and they just need to Experience that. So, okay. so really finding those kinds of programs or those kinds of interventions, particularly as a parent, Mm -hmm. when you're looking at what your child is doing in those programs, looking at a program that finds the balance between those Mm -hmm. two of text experience and lots and lots and lots and lots of text, Mm -hmm. and then also filling in the holes with that kind of direct instruction for those kinds of elements. I think, to me, that is a good program. That's what I would look for.
2: And that's exactly what we do at the University of Utah Reading Clinic. Now, I will add that that's the prescription for a um, sort of your garden variety um, struggling reader, in other words there's there 's really no cognitive glitch that 's in the way if there is it 's more at a um, milder level. Yeah. There are children you know let 's talk about dyslexia for just a second dyslexic 's difficulties range um, from mild to moderate to severe, and it 's because there 's a neurobiological um, glitch in the phonological system that impedes their ability to sort of process the speech sounds and how they hook up to letters very well. Those children, intervention for those children or adults, needs to err on the side of more skill level instruction for the decoding and spelling because the, what they have in their memories for words is very, it's not precise. And that's why they struggle, and so and and those are the folks that need many, many repetitions, distributed, successful practice over years, sometimes. And so it really does; it really has to flow with the child's needs.
1: So, and that' why is why assessment is so critical, right? Because we really, at the very foundation of this, we need to make sure that we're assessing the right problem, Mm -hmm. so we can find the right intervention, the right treatment for that. So that, for me. Assessment is foundational. Mm-hmm. You got to figure out what's wrong, then, and then mm-hmm. and then figure out how to what how to, to best do. correct it. And wonderful today, we have so many different types of treatments, so many types mm-hmm. of different interventions that are available. Um, and finding the best fit for your child and the best fit for your child's needs can be a stressful, long process sometimes. But please parents stick at it I mean make be an advocate for your child if, if that's no one, one else of, will be yeah if that's one of the things I think we both could recommend at this point is you know if your child is struggling be an advocate for them and there are resources out there in any community that you live in through your schools through your mm-hmm. universities through through um, You know, community resources, um, even places like United Way will have resources available to you. So just be an advocate for them because this is so important and you really need to find out what works best for your child in your child's situation. Absolutely. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Kathleen. Appreciate you talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Kathleen Brown is the director of the University of Utah Reading Clinic. Now, let's step into the classroom with our student production assistant, Natalie Anderson, to learn a little bit about telescopes.
0: It's hard to believe that humans have not always known what existed beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Even in the last 50 years, our knowledge has expanded and our progress has increased by leaps and bounds.
5: That's one small step for man,
1: one giant leap for mankind.
0: Yet, we likely wouldn't have been able to get to this point without a fairly simple device, that telescope. It's our science spotlight in the classroom. Would it surprise you to know that we don't actually know who invented the first telescope? The earliest documented case of a telescope comes from the Netherlands, A man by the name of Hans Lippershey claims to have invented it, and applied for a patent. Lippershey was an eyeglass maker, who had stumbled upon the process of magnification using lenses. However, there was another man, just down the street, who also claimed to invent it. His name was Jacob Metius. In the end, neither was awarded the patent because the telescope was so easy to replicate. So easy, in fact, that another scientist was able to replicate it based on the description alone. Galileo Galilei was visiting Venice when he heard about this fantastic device that could be used to magnify things far away. When he returned to his home in Padua, he was able to quickly create his own version that was even more powerful than the original. Galileo was also the first recorded person to set the telescope on the skies. He was the first person to document the hills, valleys, and craters on the moon the rings of Saturn, sunspots, and the moons of Jupiter. The more he used the telescope, the more he found, and the more he realized that the solar system wasn't exactly what the world thought it was. Almost 100 years prior to this, Nicholas Copernicus had determined a heliocentric system one that placed the sun in the center of the solar system with the planets, including Earth, orbiting the sun. There was little objection to it at the time, and it was considered an uncontroversial theory, albeit one that couldn't be true. Between the time of Copernicus's death and Galileo's findings through the telescope, the tides had turned on the opinion of heliocentrism. Galileo had determined that the Earth had to revolve around the sun based on his observations of the bodies in the night sky. This new discovery was against the beliefs and teachings of the Catholic Church, and following an inquisition and trial, Galileo was placed under house arrest. We've come a long way since then. Nowadays, we have telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope, taking pictures of nebulae and stellar phenomenon far away from our little solar system. We have the Kepler Space Telescope that searches the night sky for planets, and the ALMA Telescope in Chile that can detect objects through space, dust, and debris. Several new telescopes are planned to be put into commission within the next few years, and who knows what we'll be able to explore next. Thanks for joining me in the classroom.
1: It can be an amazing process to discover what our vocation in life is. For some, it comes when we are children, and for others, it takes more time. I have nonfiction author Elizabeth McLeod on the phone with me today to talk about her journey. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Rachel. Elizabeth, you write a wide range of nonfiction for children. So let's talk a little bit about the start of this journey for you. Were you a writer when you were a young person?
5: Well, I, I wrote poems and stories all through, you know, elementary and high school. But um, not all of them were actually for school assignments. Um, when we were supposed to be doing homework, my brothers and I instead, well, they would slide pictures under my, under my door. They were both really good artists, um, and they'd be sketches of, like funny animals or space creatures or whatever. And I can't draw. I I couldn't then I still can't. So to to, you know, sort of give them something back I would write silly stories instead. And they would usually involve like mad scientists or alien monsters or whatever. And I would I would tiptoe down the hall and slide those under my brother's doors and not a lot of homework got done as you can imagine. (laughs) And in in university, so after after I got through all of that, um, I studied sciences, not literature. I, I actually have a degree in biology and botany, and botany is the science of plants. Um, and I, I had to I had to prepare lab reports and that sort of thing. But I, I don't think it was actually until my fourth year that I even wrote an essay. So you know I really wasn't doing a lot of of you know you know story writing report writing um, that sort of thing in in university. And and after I graduated I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But a friend of mine was writing was running a publishing workshop um, out in Banff, Alberta, um, in Canada, and. And a space became available at the last minute, so I attended the workshop, and I got really interested in publishing. I learned a lot, and I also made some really great contacts with people in the publishing world. And I got a job as an editor at Owl Magazine, and that's a magazine for kids, and in those days it had a really strong science and nature focus, Um, so my science degree just fit in perfectly. The one bad thing was, and this is true around the publishing world, the pay was really bad. I loved the job, but the pay was bad. So when somebody asked me to write books in my spare time, I jumped at the chance. And that's really when I became a a book writer. And I later became a book editor as well, but I still continued to write books. And today I edit a little, but I mostly write
1: Liz, that's such a unique combination of experience that brought you to the place you are today. Speak a little to us about how you feel like your degree in in the sciences has kind of helped prepare you to be a writer of nonfiction. Do you, do you feel that that was a good pathway that helped you be more open to writing nonfiction in accurate and engaging ways?
5: definitely because i'm not afraid of the science i i know um if i work at it and i may need to get some help Um, my husband is really great helping me with technology um, but i also know i can contact experts but i i know that i can i feel confident it may take a while but i can break a difficult process down into enough steps that I can understand it, and I I know I have a basic um, understanding or a basis, a framework to start with, um, because, you know, trees and and plants, the way they photosynthesize, it's the same way now as it was hundreds of years ago, you know, sort of thing. So what I learned, well, okay, it wasn't hundreds of years ago, I was in university, (laughs) but what I learned then,
1: (laughs) it feels that way sometimes. It does feel that way sometimes, definitely. (laughs) but what I learned then,
5: you know, is a basis for something now. Sometimes our understanding has changed a bit, but I I, I know that I've I've got a basis. So um, I, I just, you know, when I'm talking to an expert, it's in the back of my head, okay, you did this at university, because I studied physics and chemistry and uh, as well. And I just think, okay, you did this, you can understand it, and you need to understand it so that you'll be able to not only make it understandable for kids, but make them come away from it thinking, okay, photosynthesis, I get the basics of that and it's not it's not hard. You know, I, I can understand this and okay, so what else can I understand? What else am I interested in about plants or, or whatever else in biology?
1: It's exciting to see how your education has greatly influenced your work. But As far as the writing goes, what influences you there? Are there other writers or other types of things that you read or engage in that you find influence from?
5: Definitely. Um, I I notice, and uh, maybe you've noticed this too, I notice that the subjects that books for kids cover now, they're really changing. Um, And books that seem to me to have a a small or a niche audience are now getting published, which I I think is, is really great. And I also think that um, topics for kids are, are more adult I guess I would say than they were when I started writing and I, I'm wondering if, if some of that is the effect of the internet that kids are much more aware of, of, of the world, about the world they're much more um, able or interested in taking part in it too. You hear about kids doing incredible things to clean up a river or to you know to help refugees things that I'm not sure kids did when I was a kid. Um, I I'm not sure we thought we could do those kind of things, or I'm not, I'm not sure what our thinking was, actually, but I, I do think there's a, a big change there. Um, I try, I mean, like most, um, like most authors, I, I love reading, and I read all the time, and, and I think it's really important for all authors to read, especially children's authors, to read adult books as well as kids. At kids' books, just to keep aware of, of what topics are out there, what's in the news, that kind of thing. And sometimes I'll read an adult book just with the idea of, of seeing, you know, is there a topic in this book or some aspect of the book or of a topic in it that I might be able to turn into a book for kids? Is there something there that kids might find interesting?
1: I I know that that's something that you do very well, is that you write in such intriguing and connective ways, particularly for children. So tell us a little bit about how you interact with your readers. What are some of the things that you've gotten feedback on your books from young readers?
5: Well, in terms of interacting with them, I do a, a lot of school and library visits. I, I did a lot actually last year, which was was wonderful. And that you get out and you actually get to to meet the readers. And I don't know about you, but that it's such an amazing experience because when I was a kid. I think I thought all authors were dead or they were British, you know, and that's sort of <laughs> yep. how, I, how I grew up. And the idea of a writer coming to your school, I mean, can you imagine? And, I, you know, it's great for kids to, to see authors and I think to consider then writing as, as a career. Um, I often get letters from either individual readers or from classes. And I'm always amazed at how thoughtful their comments are and the things that they notice in the books and and that really interest them. And I, I live in Ontario, in Canada, and every year teachers and librarians across the province choose books for kids all across the province to vote on and to choose their favorite. So, and then they have a ceremony in May every year, and the uh, winners are announced. And I'm lucky enough to have been nominated many times for for these awards. And I love attending the ceremony because you feel like you're a rock star. The kids are so excited to be there, and they're so excited about reading, which is just amazing. Because you know, kids get excited about music, they get excited about about you know art, about about athletics, that sort of thing. But to have them excited about reading. It's great, and and after the ceremony, whether you win or lose, um, kids come around and, and get your autographs, and they will often come up and just tell me, you know, how much my book meant to them, which is just amazing and what incredible feedback. Or, or they might repeat a fun fact that they found amazing and the fact that they'll remember that and that they'll want to tell me. I, I think that's really great. And sometimes, you know, if we have time, then I can chat with them and say, what would you like me to write about next? And sometimes they have some really good ideas about, um, you know, what, what might be possible, what interests them. You know, that, that's, that's really great. I, I must tell you about um, one, one surprise I had during uh, one of my, presentations. I write a lot of biographies, and I've been lucky enough to write about Harry Houdini, who I just loved writing about. He was, he was amazing. And I think I, I, I've always been interested in him, I think, because in grade seven, uh, we had a book club at my school, and I got to buy a book about him. And I still remember that book. And ever since then, I've been interested in him. Anyway, I was doing my presentation, and one of, um, one of the boys put his hand up and offered to show me a magic trick in the middle of my presentation. <laughs> so of course I said yes. <laughs> so it's, it's those kind of surprises that make it really fun uh, to not only you know meet kids, to give presentations, but also to, to write for kids.
1: Liz, I love that. And this sense of interacting with children and seeing the joy that they have in reading nonfiction is is quite wonderful because I think sometimes for us as adults, nonfiction becomes the kind of stepchild of reading. Um, sometimes when we ask the question, do you read? What we're asking is, do you read fiction? Not necessarily, yeah. do you read nonfiction or other forms of of literature? So tell us as we close up our conversation today, why do you think nonfiction is so important for kids to read? Why do you think it is that these kids come in droves to you and are so interested in these facts? What what is it that you would say to adults of of why they need to pick up some nonfiction for their kids? Well, I think there's a there's a number of reasons. How much time do we have? No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there's there's tons. <laughs> There are
5: a number of reasons, and I, I, I know, um, and maybe you'd have a comment on this. I know there is a feeling that boys tend to prefer nonfiction over fiction, and and so I think there's a feeling of this is nonfiction can be a way of getting boys uh, involved in reading, whether they stick with nonfiction or move on, but I think also kids are curious about the world they want to know how things happen and and why they happen They're, they're still trying to figure out relationships with other people they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives and when they see stories that they know are true so they know these things really happened you know they they may love reading stories i think most people do but there's a feeling of well i you know i'll never do that because that never really happened yeah he was really brave but this isn't really true I think with nonfiction, you get to read about people who did do amazing things, who did things that you would not have thought were, was possible, and that's what I try to, to tell kids. How did these people find the courage? What was their background? What did they have to overcome? And I think it, it, can, it can make kids feel better about their own situation. It can, it can improve their self-esteem. I, I love writing biographies for all of those kind of reasons because I think they're really helpful to kids. But just with nonfiction in general, um, I think, you know, kids often feel like there's a lot in the world that they can't control. And I think with nonfiction, it gives them a handle on, okay, this is how these things happen. And now how can I use that information in my own life?
1: Liz, I could not agree more. I think that that just brings nonfiction into its true realm. It's about curiosity. It's about discovery. And it's about engaging our children with the world around them. And kids are curious. And I think we need to help them be more curious. Because in all honesty, for me, that's what's going to help make our world better. It's going to help change our world. (laughs) It's all these curious kids that are coming up. (laughs)
5: Well, I love that you use the word discovery, too. I think that's a great word.
1: Yeah, it's, it is about that. And that's where it lies in the nonfiction is the curiosity and discovery. So thank you so much, Liz, for providing that wonder and curiosity and discovery for our young readers. And we look forward to what is coming from your work in the years to come. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth MacLeod is an author of nonfiction literature. Now it's time to step around the librarians table with librarians from around Utah. This week, I have librarian Kirsty Kirkland from Provost Elementary School to talk about research skills. I am in studio today with a wonderful elementary school librarian, welcome.
6: Thank you. Introduce yourself to our studio
1: audience today. All
6: right. I am Kirsty Kirkland. I teach at Provost Elementary, and I teach library there. See, and I love that
1: because there, when you say you teach library, there, there is stuff that you teach,
6: right? And so when you talk about teaching library, what, what do you mean? Yes, we have a full curriculum that we have to teach. So I teach all note-taking skills, research online, how to use the library catalogs online, as well as like different genres and, you know, basic love of reading, of course. Yes, which is which is totally so important.
1: But the thing that you mentioned that I think is really intriguing, I don't think a lot of people realize, particularly at the elementary level, that we teach is research. And I know for me as like a college academic librarian, that's really important. Research is totally <laughs> important. So what is it? Describe for us what it is you teach at that level for kind of research. What what is what are the skills that you're looking at?
6: So we basically we start off with like copyright laws so that they know how to not plagiarize items and what those are as well as the fair act. And then we talk about primary sources, secondary sources and what's the most reliable sources they can go to and then how to search those online as well as in books and how to reference those in their bibliographies and stuff like that so that they aren't plagiarizing anything. So getting your information correct as well as going to the right sources because there's so much on the Internet of people's opinions that you don't want to write a paper that's based on only opinion, which a lot of – Elementary kids don't realize that a lot of the internet is just opinion and they take everything as hard facts. So that's kind of like a wake-up call early on for them to filter through what people are saying and try and pick out the truth. So my hope is that like, as they get into these middle schools and high schools start doing papers and college, that they can really form their own opinions too and be able to pick out truth from untruths and and write some good – good papers and good facts, like focus on those facts, what is really going on. That seems to me that especially today, that's so
1: much more important than it's ever been. I mean, have you seen that to be true? Is that
6: particularly over your career? Have you seen that change a little bit? Oh, definitely. And I've had kids that have gotten in arguments about just different topics, and then they'll bring it to library or to me, and I'll tell them you know let's research this and so it'll be kind of like a debate class almost you know but i'll say prove it you've got to have facts you can't just state opinions. so where's the facts and so they've learned you know where to go on the internet that's like a reliable source because we've talked about reliable sources and um they have to like defend that kind of opinion instead of just being like no i'm right you're wrong And we usually get more into that around fourth grade. The younger kids haven't started forming those opinions yet or really reading up as much as the fourth through the sixth graders. But even starting
1: that early, I think, is so important, and and particularly just in our cultural environment, too, when we talk about things like fake news and other types of things. This is so much more in your face with, with kids. So... What, it, what are some of the ones that you use that are like the authoritative sources, right? Where, where are some places that you send them to help them navigate some of these kind of controversial – well, I guess controversial isn't the right kind of topic, but some of these things where they need to research opinions and
6: find facts? I usually tell them to look up, like, newspapers, you know, news websites and stuff like that. Stay away from the blogs. And stay away from the Facebook and the Instagram, which Yay! they love to go to <laughs> yeah, and say, but yeah. this person said this, you know. So stay away from these social media more sites and kind of delve into the the reporting sites that are reporting the facts more or, you know, as far as books go, look look for where their sources are. Go to the bibliography and see where it is, you know, that they came from and they can go to those books and look up more facts if they want to. And just we're also working a lot on respecting other people's opinions. So I'm like, if that is somebody's opinion... You don't have to argue against it all the time. You can be like, I respect that. I don't think that, but I respect that as well. So it's kind of, it's a really good way to teach them to understand other people and be like, it's okay that they have that opinion. I don't have to accept it as fact, but go farther if you want to know more about why they think that way.
1: That's really a cool way to look at it because it really goes beyond kind of the research skills in some ways and gets more into rhetoric and argument and writing and speaking skills. So I love that sense that you know when we
6: think of library, it's really tied up in a lot of different things. (laughs) That's why I love library, because I can teach them character skills. I can teach them, we've been focusing on segregation because of Martin Luther King Day, talking about why people would have had that opinion, what would have changed it, how one person can make a difference. So you're building up Character skills, and you're introducing them to new concepts that they've never really experienced through other people's lives. But then they realize, "Hey, I've experienced this before. I know how they're feeling. What can I do to be that one person that can change the world?" And
1: that's a place to set kids off, particularly in you know that third, fourth, fifth grade, right, where they, right, where they, um, kind of contextualize what they're doing and and are starting to build that individual identity. And th- that a library and the library skills you teach can be the place to do that, I think is, is really quite cool
6: and, and neat. <laughs> it is. It's so fun. And we do it in first grade, second grade, third grade. We talk about like Looking at different people 's opinions and reading these books and saying, "So who thinks this way, who doesn 't think this way? you know what experiences have you had that go along with what this character just did, So we kind of apply all of the books that we read to their lives at that moment, and we 're a Title I school, so some of these kids have had some hard lives, yeah, and they know what these characters are going through, yeah. they know what it 's like to be bullied, they know what it's like to not have much money or they know, you know, they understand those concepts and they can kind of see where these characters are coming from and then they want to know more. Yeah. And then extending that
1: on into nonfiction and online sources Mm -hmm. and these kinds of things just builds greater depth of understanding, which I think for me is, you know, kind of the core of all of this. When when I think of library skills, I think of critical thinking and depth of understanding. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. It's kind of sad.
6: (laughs) No, most people, when they hear what I do, they think that I just read stories all day or just teach them how to use a catalog. But it's Way deeper than that, <laughs> oh yes,
1: it, it is so much more complex. I, it is very complex, and i I am so glad that you were with us today to kind of open people's eyes to to what it means to have library time and to engage with some of these critical elements. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Kirsty for joining me around the Librarian's Table. We've had a great show today. We talked with author David Butler about different genres. Then we talked with Dr. Kathleen Brown about at-risk and struggling readers. Our last interview was with Elizabeth McLeod, and we talked about her personal writing journey. If you missed any of today's show or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.